I want to speak to you today from Psalm 150. And uh, as always, if you have a smartphone, there's a Bible app that you can download and you can go to the events on that Bible app and you can find the scripture that's here and some graphics and some other information that might be helpful to you. We are talking about resilience. We're talking about the ability to bounce back. We've been talking about some tools that we understand that God has given us so that we are better able to bounce back. And we've, we've actually hit a number of them. We've talked about the tool of spiritual companionship, how if you have someone to walk with you in, in tough times, that's a blessing from God. And that's a tool he gives you to help you come back from a difficult situation. We've talked about other things like spiritual mentors and the ability to take responsibility for the trajectory of your life. That's a gift from God. It's a tool he has to help you bounce back and the importance of processing pain and even the hunger we have for God, the passion we have to know God. That is a tool that he put inside of us to make it so that we would be who he wants us to be and that would include being resilient. And there are other tools as well. We're going to talk today about a tool that I am calling corporate worship. When I say corporate worship, I'm not talking about like worshiping a corporation like I worship Apple and you worship Microsoft. No, we don't worship either of those. When I say corporate worship, I'm talking about together as a group of people, we worship God with one heart, with one voice, with one mind. We are united corporately as though we ourselves are a corporation worshiping the most high God. And really, He has ordained that for us to do, and it tends to aid us in our lives, even in the area of resilience. Now, an example of this, of how corporate worship helps us, is found in Psalm 150. It's only a half a dozen verses long, and I want you to look at each sentence as I read them and notice um, a little bit of the grammar there. We'll talk about it in a minute, but this is an example of how the Bible speaks of the importance of corporate worship. Listen as I read this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Now now catch the last verse. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And look at the last sentence. In case I haven't told you enough, the writer says, here it is again, praise the Lord. Now, if you remember your junior high English grammar, you remember there's different kinds of sentences. There are sentences that are exclamatory, like, how about them dogs? You know, there's that kind of thing. That's a Georgia thing to say. It's an exclamation. There are sentences that are interrogatives. Do you know what I mean by that? That would be another one. There are sentences that are declaratives, that just say things. And then there are sentences that are imperatives. They are commands. And each of those sentences in that psalm was an imperative. Each of those sentences said, this is a command, worship God and do it together. And so from the psalmist telling us to worship God together to Jesus at the Last Supper, gathered together with his disciples, singing and worshiping God together, the Bible teaches us that corporate worship is important. And that worship is not something that we just do by ourselves, but we do it with others. As I was preparing for this message this week, I read a little bit by a gentleman whose name is Don Whitney. He happens to be a seminary professor and author, and and he wrote these words. Listen as I read them. He said, there is an element of worship in Christianity that cannot be experienced 
in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in the, quote, meeting together with other believers. In other words, there are some blessings of Christian faith that can only come to you when you engage in corporate worship. And that's why TV church doesn't seem to do it for most people. And if you think about it, they have better preaching than we do. Well, they're close, right? They have better music than we do. Well, they're close, right? A TV church gets done on time. Every week they get done on time while well, they got its feet there, right? Yeah, and, and not only that, they have, they have better presentation. Everybody looks perfect on TV church. And have you noticed the chairs when you're watching TV church? It's your recliner. Everything about TV church would beat what we're doing here. And yet, and yet, anyone with any spiritual insight at all knows that worshiping while sitting in front of a television or sitting in front of a computer monitor or sitting in front of a tablet or a cell phone does not provide you with what you get when you're sitting among your brothers and sisters in Christ. Corporate worship gives you something for which there is no substitute. And that something, to fit with our theme, increases your level of resilience. Let's talk for a minute about some elements that are included in corporate worship, and we're not going to talk about all of them. I can tell you that for sure, but let's just mention a couple of them. I can remember when I was a kid, my dad loved to rant, you know? I'm imagining, Matt, that your children and mine probably in the years now and beyond will say, boy, did my dad, he was a good ranter. My dad would love to rant. And, and occasionally he'd get on this Bible rant. And I can remember he would say, that the one unforgivable crime that he felt a pastor or a small group leader could commit was abandoning the scripture. I don't know where he'd gone to church, but evidently in dad's past, he'd been in church where the Bible was not even mentioned. And to dad, that was just a crime. Good for you, dad. (laughs) Good for you. I don't know what the pastor was doing in that church. Chicken soup for the soul, maybe. I don't know. But it just wasn't the Bible and it didn't feel right to dad and it shouldn't feel right to dad. Shouldn't feel right to any of us. Laurel and I, early in our ministry, we were visiting another community, we're in another church, and in the church, I noticed that the Bible wasn't opened, the Bible wasn't read from, the Bible wasn't quoted, the Bible wasn't referred to. And when we left, on the way home, Laurel looked at me and said, how weird was that, right? You know? Of course, she didn't add the right to the end because we just started doing that a couple years ago, right? Right? <laughs> But yeah, I looked, I said, yeah, did you notice there was no Bible? She said, there was no Bible. That's so strange. And it is strange because one of the most essential elements in public worship is receiving the word of God. You come here to receive from the Bible. The Christian Bible is an integral part of public worship. Even before Christians had a Bible, they met together to receive the word of God. The book of Acts is a story of the early church. And in the book of Acts, you find them gathering together in chapter 2, and it says that these Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's the apostles' teaching? It's the thinking that is eventually going to be written down in the New Testament in the Bible. So so even right from the get-go, when people were gathering together for corporate worship, they were receiving the word of God. Now, in some churches, reading the Bible is like a 
a formal part of the liturgy. I'm sure you've been to churches where there was a special time in a service where someone stood, went to a lectern or a pulpit, and read from the gospel or read from the word of God. And that, that's just part of their, their liturgy or their order of worship. That's great. There are other churches where it's read responsibly. Years ago, responsibly. Years ago, we used to have a hymnal that in the back, I would read one part and you would read the next part. And I would read the next part and you would read the next part. And that was a presentation of the word of God. That's cool. In some churches, it might be read in unison. Let's all read this together in unison. That's hard with so many different translations of the Bible today, but that's good too. In some churches, it's read from a special pulpit. I was in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and the, the, the pastor, preacher, stood up in the front, but when it was time to read the word, he actually went the whole way to the back to a whole different pulpit where he read the Bible as part of their liturgy. That, what they're doing in each of those cases is they're saying, here's the Bible, it's important. We read it during the sermon because I want to read it to you and then I want to unfold it to you or share with you thoughts that correspond with what the word of God is saying there because the Bible's an essential part of corporate worship. Another part of corporate worship, another element of corporate worship would be the joining of our hearts together in prayer. And again, you see that right at the end of the passage in Acts. The early Christians devoted themselves to, in the last words, prayer, to prayer in verse 42. How many of you, let me ask you to put up your hand. How many of you remember an elder in this church named Jim Mitchell? Put up your hand if you remember him. Oh, that's great. That's that's a lot of you. Those of you that didn't know him, he was just such a good guy. Just such a great guy. Everybody loved Mr. Mitchell. He served as an elder for a decade. And the elders did what the elders do here. They take turns praying. And at that time, they come up onto the platform and they get behind the pulpit here and they get right into the microphone here and they would begin to pray. And Mr. Mitchell began his prayer with the same phrase every week. I texted Bethany Livergood this week and said, do you remember the exact phrasing of that? Because I had one extra word in there. And she said, yes, I do. And she texted me back. Here it is. Our dear, kind, heavenly father. His first words. Bethany was coming to church. She wasn't even a believer yet. Heard him say those words. Our dear, kind, heavenly father. Others of you have said, I love it when Mr. Mitchell prays. I love how he begins. Our dear, kind, heavenly father. Now, when Mr. Mitchell did that, he was touching hearts as he prayed. It's not like Mr. Mitchell decided, you know what, when I go in this morning, I think I'll try to touch hearts. That was so foreign to his way of thinking. But rather, what he did is what all people do when they are leading a group in prayer. They are verbally reaching out, and they're reaching out to our hearts. And they're embracing our hearts and gathering them together and taking them before the throne of grace and saying, God, hear our hearts. Hear our hearts. And it's a beautiful thing that only happens in corporate worship. You can pray on your own. You should pray on your own. But if you're not involved in corporate prayer, you're missing something very beautiful. You're missing an essential element. How about one more? Quieting our hearts before God. I once knew a gentleman who wanted everyone to be quiet when they came into the sanctuary. He suggested maybe we close the doors. Everybody needs to be quiet when they come in here. And, and, and he would say, when these people are in here and are chatting together, that is just irreverent and that shouldn't be. Now, I understand that. I understand that. But I think he was kind of mistaking loving relationships for irreverence. 
Because I don't think anyone was coming in here to be irreverent. But rather we were coming in here because we just loved each other and wanted to share in one another's life. That's beautiful. But there's something to be said for quieting your heart before God. I did it this morning before we went into the next song after the announcements. I said, let's just quiet our hearts before God and focus our attention on him. In fact, every Sunday when I preach here, I preach right after the elder prays. One of the reasons for that is because it's a good time to quiet our hearts before God so we can hear what God has to say to us. It's part of corporate worship doing these things. And when we do these things, it builds us up internally and it gives us something we need. It actually helps build resilience in a number of ways. How does corporate worship help build resilience? Well, one way is it turns your attention toward God. When I worship alone or when I try to worship alone in my house or in my car or in my study, I often find myself distracted. Do you? Like I'm sitting there at home and I think, wow, that lawn needs mowed. I wonder if I can convince Laurel that the lawnmower blew up so I don't have to do that. You know? and, then, and then if I'm in my office, I'm like, have you seen this office? I can't even find a place to sit down. I don't have time to worship. I should be praying. If I'm going down the road in my car, there's those other drivers and they detract from my worship as well. And often I find myself distracted by good things or by bad things when I'm trying to worship alone. But when you're engaged in corporate worship, it turns your attention toward God. And that is vital. It is vital that your attention is turned toward God regularly because if your focus and your attention is turned toward the wrong things, you will be less resilient. For example, if your attention is on your struggles, maybe your financial struggles, to the point where you're obsessing about them, that obsessing nature does not make you stronger, it makes you weaker. Now, it's not that you ignore your financial problems. You address them, but you don't focus on them. You focus on God. If your focus is on your health problems, if you're obsessed about your relationship, if you're worried and fretting to death about your children, to the exclusion of worshiping God, you're not even mentioning or thinking about God because you're so focused on those things. How resilient will you possibly be? Not resilient at all. And often those who fail to bounce back are those people who have been consumed by their struggles. That word consumed, think about that for a minute. It means to be eaten, right? <laughs> and in this case, the eaten is kind of the way rust eats away at an automobile. And we look at that car and we say that car is being consumed by rust and eventually it will fade away and it will be a total loss. And I want to suggest to you that if our focus isn't on God with some regularity, that we endanger ourselves, put ourselves in danger of a faith that's similar. In corporate worship, it forces you to focus on God, on his love, we sing about it. On his eternity, eternality, we sing about it. On his grace, you hear it in sermons. On his power and his ability to help you, you hear it during the prayer. On his provision, you think of it as you give your tithes and offerings. All of those good things about God make you resilient and you tend to focus on them when you're engaged in corporate worship. Corporate worship is a blessing to you because it turns your attention toward God and it increases your confidence in him. Several months ago, I did a sermon series called Lies That Even Seasoned Christians Can Believe. Do you remember that? I've got to tell you. 
Pastors live in this illusion that, we rem- that you remember what we say to you. <laughs> yeah, the very first sermon, that sermon series, I should say, that sermon series was designed to help you distinguish truth from error. And the very first lie that we talked about there was a lie that many of you told me throughout the series, that is the most damaging in my life. It's the one I'm tempted to believe the most. It's a lie that says you are alone. You're alone. That lie, man, it just keeps coming up to me, Pastor. And in that sermon, I tried to counter the lie, which even Elijah believed. Remember him? After he called down fire from heaven. In that sermon, I tried to counter the lie that says you are alone with the truth that says God is always with you, the biblical truth. And, and there's very little compared to rational biblical truth to help you overcome a lie. It's a good thing. But I want to suggest to you that just as a sermon speaks to our rational minds concerning biblical truth, worship somehow or other speaks to our spirits in an experiential way concerning biblical truth. You, extend, you begin to understand it on a different level maybe a deeper level or maybe a higher level. When you're gathered together with 20 or 50 or 100 or 200 or 20,000 people and you're all praying together and you're all worshiping together and you're listening to God's word together, your confidence in God has increased and your resilience picks up just a little more volume and a little more gravity. Corporate worship creates resilience. It does so by strengthening your commitment to Christ. You know, when the Bible is speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, it's talking about gifts of prophecy and teaching and a number of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. And and along there in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 14, we begin to understand how important it is that we understand one another because as we gather together, God uses our words to do something important in our lives. He says when he speaks of the gift of prophecy, which I understand the gift of prophecy is not what Miss Cleo was pretending she had a dozen years ago, but rather the gift of prophecy is having a message from God and giving it to God's people. It's kind of what I'm doing right now. And when that gift is being exercised, God says in 1 Corinthians 14.3, the one who prophesies speaks to people, and look at this phrase, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. So prophecy, one of the many parts of worship, is so that you can be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. Generally, you don't hear prophecy when you're alone. You need someone else to speak the words of prophecy. You experience it during corporate worship, and not just in a sermon. Sometimes you'll experience through the sermon, I've been sitting where you're sitting, and I just felt like, how does that guy know that about me? You know, have you ever felt that way? He doesn't. But that's God using this experience of corporate worship to change you. Sometimes it happens in a small group. You're gathered together with a group of people. You're talking about your life in Christ and someone says something in that small group and you're like, holy mackerel, I can't believe you just said that. That was from God. And sometimes it happens in music. How many times have you listened to a song that isn't even that good a song? You know what I mean? Or maybe it's several centuries old and you're like, I would never turn on the radio to hear that song. And it speaks to you like nothing else does. When God does that, he is working to change your life, to strengthen your commitment to him. 
He's working to help you turn your back on sin and to turn your life toward him and embrace what he has for you. And as he does that, he strengthens your resilience. Corporate worship just makes you a better person. It teaches you things like cooperation, like submission, like agreeability, (laughs) like humility, like kindness. And it does that by forcing you to surrender to the Spirit in the liturgy and in the gathering of the body of Christ. When my children were young, they had divergent tastes in entertainment. Tim wanted to watch Bill Nye the Science Guy. Who doesn't like Bill Nye the Science Guy? Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill, Bill. I love that show. Right? Esther, I don't know. Princesses, I don't even know what that stuff was, right? That's what she wanted to watch. And, and I, I can remember at times there would be conflict over that. And my suggestion was, hey, Laurel, have you noticed the price on televisions? They're almost giving away those things. You know why they were doing that? Because they were tube sets and they knew that you were going to have to pay to get rid of that later. I said, they're almost giving those things away at Kmart. Do you remember Kmart? They're almost giving those things away there. We should get each kid a television of their own saying, watch whatever they want. We don't have to listen to this conflict. And the wise woman of Proverbs that I'm married to, she said something like this. Steve, if we do that, they'll never learn. They will never learn cooperation. They will never learn kindness. They will never learn to take turns. They will never learn flexibility. They will never learn submission to one another. She was right. I have strong opinions about music. And I'm just getting old enough to realize that no one really cares about my opinions on music. (laughs) But I'm going to share them anyway. There are two kinds of music. I know what you think I'm going to say. Country and Western. It's not what I'm going to say. There are two kinds of music. The kind I like and the kind I don't like. That's what it comes down to. And I love living in this time period because all I have to listen to is the kind I like. I don't have to listen to the kind I don't like. Bless your heart if you didn't experience the 70s with eight-track tape players. You bought the whole eight-track, there were two songs on it you liked, and you had to listen through all those other songs just to get to the song you liked over and over again. Oh, I hated that. And DJs. I mean, who plays Pink Floyd and follows it with Michael Jackson? What are you thinking there, right? I don't have to put up with that anymore. You know why? Because I moved from the 8-track to the cassette player, and I could fast-forward through that. But then I moved from that to CDs, and I could just take out a CD and put another one in. And now I moved from that to an iPod, and on my phone right now, in my pocket right here, I have 4,000 songs plus on my phone right now. And I like almost all of them, but some of Laurel's songs have crept onto that thing. (laughs) You know what I do when I hear it? I delete it. I'm not going to listen to that song. I don't have to. This technology blesses me with this great convenience, but it does not bless me with godliness. Do you see that? It lets me have my way and I don't have to learn to cooperate or be kind or take turns or be flexible or submit to anyone. I don't have to do that in that technology. But I have to do that in corporate worship. Did you hear that sentence? Corporate worship forces me to sing songs that other people pick, songs I might not even like. 
styles that I might not even care about. Corporate worship teaches me that if I do not like a particular hymn at the early service, or I do not like a particular set of music at the second service, that's fine because it's not for me anyway. It's for God. And it's for His people. And it's what draws God and His people together. And so I learn in corporate worship to consider the needs of the people around me and what it is that draws them to Christ. And I learn kindness and flexibility and cooperation and submission and I become a better person. And when I'm a better person, I become resilient. It all comes through corporate worship. So wise people, they prioritize corporate worship in little ways and in big ones. Some of the small ways you can do it is just by showing up. (laughs) Just be there regularly, you know? When I was a kid, my, my family traveled a lot. I've been everywhere, man. I have, you know? We would sing that song and we'd check off the states. Eight-foot camper. Well, it started off with a cap on the back. My dad made, made a foam mattresses and then an eight-foot camper and then a 12-and-a-half-foot camper, 13-foot camper, and then a 35-foot fifth-wheel trailer. Man, that was like taking the whole farm with us, right? Yeah, that was good. In all those places we went, we almost always on Sunday morning, my parents found a way to get involved in corporate worship. Sometimes it was at the campsite. Sometimes we were walking into the back of that church. It might have been in Sioux City, Iowa, or it could have been in Tynesta, Pennsylvania. We smell like smoke because we were just around a campfire the night before. And there we are, corporate worship. How do you prioritize it? Just be there and be there on time. It's kind of helpful maybe to think of corporate worship as lunch with your best friend. You don't want to keep him waiting, right? You wouldn't say, meet me at noon and then show up at quarter after. I I don't know that I would do that. I wouldn't even say to my best friend, hey, I know we said we'd meet at noon, but go ahead and start without me. Order whatever you want. I'll be there when I, I have some other things I need to do first. We wouldn't do that. We would prioritize our start time together. And we probably wouldn't skip the part where we get to tell our best friend how much we care about them. We probably involve ourselves in all of us. So number one, show up. Number two, be there on time. And number three, pinky in the brain. Focus, pinky, focus, right? When you come to worship, to corporate worship, focus on God. Not your Facebook feed, not, not any social media, not, not your shopping list, not the recipe for what you're going to make for lunch today. I mean, those are all important things, but that's not what you're here for. You're not here to text people about the thing that you forgot to text them about yesterday. You're not here to whatever. You're here to worship God. Those are small ways you can do it, but there are some big ways, some really large ways that you can prioritize corporate worship. And, and the first one is, I think this is really powerful. Listen to it. Ask God in advance to meet you here. Ask God in advance to meet you here. I'll tell you what. I would love to do, I'd love to be this guy. I would love to say to you, my dear brothers, when I get up on Sunday morning, before my feet hit the ground, I am praising God to be awake and to be able to get together a message for you. And before I do any of that, I, I look to him and say, oh God, this is your day. May you be blessed. That's not what I do. I look at that alarm clock and I scowl. I say, what are you ringing for at this hour? right? Because I'm not that guy, right? But how much different would my life be? How much different would your life be 
If on Sunday morning, before your feet hit the ground, or maybe even when you're in the shower and you're finally awake enough to think through this stuff, if you were to say, God, would you please meet me at 725 Susquehanna Avenue this morning? God, would you just hear my voice as I sing? Would you just hear my heart as we pray? God, would you please speak to my spirit as we interact together? Would you please be pleased with my gift as I worship you? Would you be pleased with those things? Meet me in worship this morning. How would your life be different if you, if you did that? I've got to tell you, that would be a large way to prioritize corporate worship. Another way is just to actively engage in the worship itself. For some people, that just means opening your mouth and singing. You know, I don't stand up front anymore, but I remember back in the day, Jim Bell and I, for, what was it, Jim? Maybe 75 years, you and I led songs together up here. 100. Yeah, 100. And every now and then, I'd say to Jim, so how many people did you notice that never opened their mouth once? <laughs> and Jim would say, Pastor, I don't think we should talk about that. And I'd say, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> So for some of us, it's just going to be open in our mouths, you know, because you want to actively worship God. If you want to prioritize corporate worship in a large way, you're going to actively do it. For some of you, it might mean lifting your head and just, you could keep your mouth shut and you're like, yeah, God, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. For some of you, it might be bowing your heart in prayer. For some of you, it might be lifting your hands. Listen to this. I am not asking you to do anything specific. You hear that? And every now and then you'll, have some, you'll see someone who says, you need to worship this way. The way you're worshiping seems dead or the way you're worshiping seems too chaotic. You need to, I'm not doing that to you, man. I think people that do that aren't thinking clearly. I'm just asking you to actively engage your mind in worship and actively express your worship to God with the rest of the body of Christ. And when you do that, that's a large way to prioritize worship. Here's a third one. Take it home with you. <laughs> you ever see people taking note in church, notes in church and wondering what they're doing? They're filling out their shopping list. They're going to go to Walmart right after this. <laughs> no, they're not. Sometimes they're writing down things that, you know, they're, they're picking up from the sermon. Ah, oh, so the Apostle Paul wrote this, or, you know, like just cerebral things. Other times, I, I think they're writing down things like that God is saying to them. And on the Version Bible app, you have the opportunity to do that and then save it, and then you can go back and look at those notes later. I think probably the coolest thing you could write down whenever a sermon is happening, whenever a church service, and when you're engaged in corporate worship, is maybe even a little note to God. You know, open up an Evernote or get out a Post-it pad and just jot down, God, thanks for loving me the way you do. God, thanks for providing a church where I can worship you. God, thanks for the great music that you provide for us. God, thank you for helping me. God, please help me do better at this. God, please break this chain in my life. God, please meet me here. I'm desperate. When you begin to write those things down and take them home and look over them, that prioritizes corporate worship in a very meaningful way. In a very meaningful way. Take it home with you. So when I was a kid, wait a second, I've got to ask you this. There was a woman in Brookville back in the day named Mrs. Crate who taught guitar lessons. Anyone know her? Good, let's talk bad about her. <laughs> I'm not going to talk bad about her. I'm going to give you a fourth grade perspective on Mrs. Crate and the guitar lessons. I can remember sitting there taking the guitar lessons and I kind of wanted to play the guitar because that's what the Beatles played. And I kind of was thinking that would be a fun thing to do. But I can remember sitting in that lesson and her pointing at the notes and trying to show me how to do it. And it was drudgery. And then I can remember going home and she would say, I want you to practice for an hour every day of the week. And I tried that. You know what it was? Drudgery. 
And then I can remember going back in and sitting with her there, and, and the, the, she'd give me the music to take home. Go to Aunt Rhody, the Red River Valley. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes, and oh no, the Big Rock Candy Mountain. You know what that is? Drudgery. It was such drudgery to me. And then I'd go in to Mrs. Crate's living room there, and she would say, let me feel your fingers, and I'd want to hide them because they were soft as a baby's. And she would say, there's no calluses. Look at mine. Look at mine. Look at mine. Look at mine. Drudgery. You get it? <laughs> it was drudgery. And then I quit. I didn't pick up a guitar from fourth grade until my junior year in college. And my roommate in the apartment we were in in Pittsburgh, his name was Kenny. He played guitar and he played well. And I said, uh, I, I took guitar lessons once. He said, really? He said, play, play something for me. I said, uh, I can't play anything. He said, do you want to learn? I said, no. <laughs> he said, why not? I said, because it's drudgery. And he said, no, no, it's not. Your girlfriend, Laurel, she lives where, in Kentucky? Yeah. I can teach you how to play a song on a guitar and you could play it and sing to it, and record it on a cassette, and put it in the mail, and send it to her. Ah. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah, let's do that. He said, pick the song. I picked the song with 12 chords in it. I don't know what was wrong with me. But I worked on it, and worked on it, and it was not drudgery. And I learned to play it. And I made a cassette, and I sent it to Laurel. She listened to it once, and destroyed it. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. She probably wore it out because she was in love, you know? Here's what happened. My roommate gave me a direction that took away the drudgery. Discipline, like corporate worship and coming here and being here, without any sense of direction is drudgery. But when you have a sense of direction, then discipline loses that drudgeryous. That was a word I just made up. Aspect or feeling. I wish that I could do for you in terms of corporate worship what Kenny did for me in terms of playing the guitar. I wish I could show you who you can become so that you'll say, that's not drudgery. I want to become that person. But I can't do that. But you can. You'll need to think about it, but you can do it. You can look maybe at a Christian that you really respect and admire, and you can say, I want to go in that direction. I want to be like them. And you can be like them. And corporate worship will be a priority on that journey. You can look at men of prayer and say, I can't believe how that guy prays. I want a prayer life like his. And if you will prioritize corporate worship among many other things, in a decade or so, you will be that guy. You can look at that woman who her children respect her, and you're like, my kids don't respect me like that. What's going on? And you can become like her. And if you become like her, if you're going to become like her, that journey will involve corporate worship as one of the tools to help you be resilient so you can become like her. You can look at that person who walks through the valley of the shadow of death and fears no evil if you will prioritize the right things in your life.
And one of those things is corporate worship. I want to pray that you would get that vision. That you will get from your own head and from the Spirit of God regarding corporate worship, what Kenny gave me regarding guitar playing. Just think, if I'd stayed with Kenny for another semester, I might be almost as good as Drew, right? Right? Yeah. I want to pray that you will get that and it will transform your life. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Okay, let's be real clear. Here's what I'm praying, all right? And I hope you'll agree in your hearts with me. Here's what I'm praying. I am praying that God will give you a picture of who you can be when you begin to prioritize the right things, corporate worship being the one we're talking about today. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, as we are before you, we are before you as people who understand that we're on a journey. We understand that we are changing. Sometimes we're changing for the good, sometimes for the not so good. We want to change into the people you want us to be, and we know part of that involves being resilient. And we understand that you've given us tools for resilience and tools to be who you have for us to be. And one of those tools is this ability to worship together. And we understand that we will need to prioritize that in our lives if it is to be productive. So show us who you have for us to be. Show us how we can be that person who is a woman of prayer, how we can be that person who is a man of faith, how we can be that couple who can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because our hearts are turned toward you and through corporate worship, you have changed us. Help us see that ahead of time so that we do not ever see corporate worship as drudgery, but we always see the direction that you're taking us in it. This is our prayer, and we pray it with all our hearts through Christ Jesus. Amen.